Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to The Tonight Show. The call of Ireland's dairy cattle for climate targets should be voluntary, farmers say. Do you agree? Excise duty on fuel set to increase from midnight. What will it mean to you? How, in the middle of doing little to reduce other household bills, can you justify increasing the price of petrol and diesel at midnight tonight? Homeschooling in Ireland, do you think it's a good idea for children or is mainstream a better system? And later, the cost of summer 2023. We get the expert opinion. As always, join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. report from the Central Statistics Office examining the progress on reducing greenhouse gas emissions has concluded that five sectors of the economy were responsible for more than three quarters of emissions in 2020. It comes as farmers say that any plan to cull Ireland's dairy herd must be voluntary. Well, for more on this, I'm joined now by Green Party Senator Pauline O'Reilly, Independent TD Michael Healy-Ray, presenter of The Hard Shoulder on News Talk, Kieran Cudahy, and executive editor of the Daily Mail group, John Lee. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, let's talk about this, Michael Healy-Ray. This government report, an, an internal Department of Agriculture uh, a briefing or proposal, uh, which looks at culling um, 65,000 uh, Irish dairy cows per year over, over a set period, um, is the wrong way to meet Ireland's climate targets, according to some farmers. Within that, though... It will be beneficial to other farmers, won't it? They can make, they can make money off this and then the, the herd can be reduced and those all-important climate targets, which whether we like it or not have to be reached, can be reached. Well, last year and the year before, when I and some of my colleagues in the Rural Independent Group highlighted that we were afraid that this call was coming, uh, we were accused by government of scaremongering. And in fact, what we were saying is now being proven to be factually correct. You're talking about that this is um, going to be voluntary. Now, mm. it will be voluntary if enough people sign up for it, and if they don't, it won't be long be becoming compulsory. Now, the one Who's thing that we... saying that? Well, I'm saying it in the same way as that I said last year that there would be a call, and I was told there wouldn't be, but now there is going to be. Now, the other thing I want to just highlight is in Ireland, and I'm so proud of our agricultural sector because we do agriculture better than anybody else. More efficiently, our dairy, our beef, is more efficient than anyone else. If you compare us to Argentina or Brazil, they're cutting down forests below there. They're doubling mm -hmm. and tripling their national herd while we're talking about reducing ours. We can do beef and we can do bear dairy better and more, uh, uh, would, I, would I put it, environmentally friendly than anywhere else in the world. But what are we talking about doing? 
We're talking about reweighting good land that we have, doing away with the national arterial program that we've had the board of works keep your rivers and, and waterways clean and, and land dry. And of course, forget about the houses that will be endangered if we'll go flooding this fertile good land. It's not just bog land they're okay. talking about flooding. So it's like a race to the bottom. And will anybody ever stand out and say, okay. this is but, crazy but there are, and it is there wrong? There are targets. There are targets. And there is a goal that has been agreed by farmers of, of a 25% emissions cut. Now, given that the CSO is saying, and we kind of already knew that figure of around 40%, that's where the emissions is at in the agricultural sector. It's still a concession uh, to, to, you know, the farming community at 25%. 20% may be reached, but there's still a 5% gap uh, to work out, that this is one surefire way of getting there. But it's so inherently wrong. A couple of years ago, we had a minister for agriculture said milk is our liquid gold and we have to just do everything we can to produce more. Mm. He encouraged farmers to increase their dairy herds. Young men and young women, families came along. They bought more land, they leased more land, they built bigger parlours. Some people that were gone out of milk went back into it. They did what they were directed by government. And now they're coming along and saying, oh, we must reduce the herd. And okay. it is so inherently yeah. wrong. But that's I want to compliment... But that's, that's the reality on meeting no, these no, climate but, targets. But, but, but do you think, and I don't I want to ask, because it's, it's interesting that's kind of nuanced the farming response here. They're not ruling this out. They're not ruling it out, and, out of hand. And they're this, saying, in fact, it may suit some farmers. No, it may suit li- farmers who don't have anyone, you know, any success around the farm for older farmers who want to get out of the business to get that money, to get compensated um, in order to lose cattle, may suit them. Listen to are there young... people within the community no, saying that? No, listen to what young farmers are saying. Listen to people like Elaine Houlihan, the president of Machnaferma, a great organisation. I was a member of it myself in my younger days, and mm. I'm glad they marched to Dublin recently to highlight what they are concerned about the future of farming for young people. We want to encourage young people to go into farming. We want to right. keep their lights on rural Ireland. Okay. And they're saying that this is wrong. They don't support it. They consider it a knee-jerk reaction to quote her words. And I compliment her and I thank her for standing out. OK, all right. Um... Pauline, to bring you in on this, what farmers will say time and time again, and what, what Michael is saying there tonight is, you know, essentially it's it's livelihoods at stake here. And, you know, the dairy sector, it was like, yes, get you know, we want to increase quotas and do all that. And we're welcoming all of this. And now there is this, obviously, decision that is made that has been forced upon us to meet our climate targets. Uh, but ha- and then, the, then news of this, you know, cull emerging, right, well, albeit voluntary. Well, uh, will it be voluntary? Well, Is that the I way just, you see can it I working? I just say first of all, it's one hundred percent wrong that there's going to be a cull. That there is any paper suggesting a cull, it's one hundred percent wrong. And Michael himself should know this because mm. it has been flagged that no, there is not a call. A call is a completely different thing to mm. reducing a herd over time. And actually, so, farmers uh, so are So what the ones... is a voluntary dairy reduction yeah, scheme? So, so what it is, is that over time, farmers don't restock to the same level as they did. So that over time, their herds are reducing. But it, it isn't a call which is taking out c- cows and killing them. That's not what it is. And that creates huge fear and anxiety amongst farmers and I think that Michael knows that and is using it and we have repeated this numerous times to Michael that that's not what it is but actually what this is is an exit scheme for dairy farmers I come from a dairy farming background myself that the farmers themselves have asked for and have called for because they can see the the schemes 
the environmental schemes that are oversubscribed. Every single environmental scheme in the country is oversubscribed. Farmers want to sign up to it mm. and dairy farmers also want a scheme so that they can sign up to it, so that they get money in their pocket if they do reduce their herds. But it's completely oh, voluntary. It's absolutely. completely voluntary. And Minister McConnell-Logue has done the work in the background. So it's a Fianna Fáil minister has done the work in the background. I asked him about it myself a few months ago. Where is this exit scheme that the farmers have been, have been looking right. for? And that's what this is about. Farmers Robert, want Robert. What she's doing is playing with words. A call, reduction, reducing. It's what it means is that we didn't Michael, and you know cows out there than what we have at present. And you know you're talking through your hat. Remember one You've thing about Ireland. You've been found out now, Michael. Remember Archer. one you, thing you're, about you're Ireland. You're talking about something completely different. And remember one thing different. about who the real green people are. They're the custodians of the Hang countryside. On a second now. They're Charlie McConnell is the agriculture yes. minister no, but, here. It's within yes. his department. Yes. But what I'm saying to you. And I'm the saying custodian, the custodians the of the land want this team. The environment in Ireland and the real people who we should be listening to are the farmers. And okay. I'm listening to and your are farmers. The farmers not, and your and farmers are the farmers are not me, looking, no, in part, dairy no. farmers looking for an exit scheme? If everyone else is getting a grant, why can't we? No, no. That's what look, Pauline's saying. The only reason people are talking about a scheme now for exiting, they're trying to make it a bad thing look good. It is not good. Farmers want to be left alone. They want to be allowed to continue producing mm. meat, producing beef, which they're good at and better than anywhere else in the world. Right. And you completely ignore the fact that we do it more efficient than anyone else. If you could tell me it's a good idea for them to be cutting down trees below in Brazil, to clear ground, to grow grass, to have more beef, to export it here to us, the same as what we're doing with the importation oh. of turf. Farmer, uh, we, farmers are responsible. We're bringing they in know the future is green. It puts that. money in their pockets. If we're so smart... We're bringing in bells and briquettes from Germany now. We were producing them in Ireland before. You forgot okay. about the horticultural industry okay. completely. You know we're bringing what? That's peat an, now that's from an issue. That's an issue. It's the same issue. It's an issue probably for another day. We're talking progress. But it's the we're same thing. Okay. It's about green, mad, and genders. Do you know what, John? I feel like this, this is on Michael. repeat. It's like, it's, it's like a broken record. We, we consistently hear this whenever we have this discussion in studio, whenever we have government, especially when we have the Green Party in, and we have rural TDs. It's the same conversation over and over again. I represent Who, urban areas as well. <laughs> Who's making who's making the decisions that we're seeing in this Department of Agriculture briefing? Note: It would seem that Charlie McConnell very much, you know, wants to. I mean, it, it's within his own department that he's coming up with this particular proposal. Well, you, you can empathise with with Michael for not really understanding what the government's policy on this is because they haven't expressed it. They have said they're going to cut. Um, and it, this is a worldwide commitment, but here we're going to cut agricultural emissions by up to 51% by 2030. That can't be done without reducing the national herd. Yet it's, yet it's completely contradictory because due to falling poverty worldwide, the demand for animal products is increasing all the time. So mm. those products are going to be needed. And no matter how many times I hear a government minister being asked how they're going to achieve that, they will not come out and say the obvious, which is they're going to have to get rid of a lot of cattle. But it, that doesn't really make sense. So I think where the frustration comes with the Green Party, and the Green Party, unfortunately, a lot of their, well, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of their, a lot of their policies have been adopted by this government, is there is a, there's a complete air of unreality. It's tomorrow's a better day for politicians. So we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to have all these emissions cuts. We're not going to tell you how we're doing it. And I'm yet to hear a government minister admit that the absolutely blatantly obvious um, tactic they have to use, which is, is, is to reduce the number of cattle in the country. Well, sure, isn't, if that, isn't that what this is about? 
I isn't that what this isn't this what this proposal Charlie is all about? was on was was and on radio this 3, morning and, euro per, per and Charlie McConlogue did what every cow. minister has done on this. He 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 revolved in circles where he said we will have a voluntary commitment to this. He would not say how they're going to achieve it. And I think what really is going on, you're, you're aiming for 2030. I've seen this with governments down the years. There's a general election in 18 months. Let someone else handle it. Yeah. Uh, Kieran, with all of this, look, it's, it's, it's a really emotive topic, especially when you to start talking about culling cows mm. and then the language used and the reduction in the herd when Pauline talks about it. It's a lot more natural and organic, if you like. But with all of it, like, will it really play out, that, out like this? Because it does appear that there are farmers on board, some of which this will this will suit. They will make money out of it. It's over three years. They're getting, you know, a few thousand euro per, per, per cow and it might actually suit them. Yeah, well, of course there might be money in it for some of them, particularly if the price of milk falls. I mean, there was huge expansion. We all know that after quotas were lifted. And, you know, a lot of that, you know, fueled by credit, which those farmers have to service. And it might suit some of them. Uh, to uh, to evade of a scheme like this, like I, I I'm I'm not entirely convinced that we're going to see a mandatory call the way uh, Michael necessarily is. It reminds me a little bit of that yeah, Mitchell and Webb scene where the kind of Tory minister suggests his kind of backroom team price up how much they'd save in the exchequer if they killed all the poor people, and and then it gets out. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a little bit like that. Like I mean, this isn't government pie. This was a briefing note within the department. But listen, maybe it will come to that. I, I do think John kind of took the words out of my mouth. I, it, this Sorry, this this speaks though to one of the problems of having national targets for a global problem, because unless we can convince we are dairy ex, we export those products. Uh, that, that we produce mm. from dairy farming. And unless we're going to convince people to consume less of them elsewhere in the world, then when we reduce our herd, they're going to buy those products somewhere else. And actually, Michael is right. I mean, it's easy to roll your eyes. And Pony, you were kind of rolling your eyes when he was saying it. It's, it does mean, possibly, the clearing of rainforest in the Amazon and an expansion of dairy farming in Brazil. And I don't understand. We might hit our targets and we can pat ourselves on the back, but because this is a global problem, we don't get anywhere. But can I say one thing about well, that? Pauline, do you want to respond to that, that idea that we can, we can all do our bit, but, you know, Ireland has been lauded as having a very efficient um, farming system and looking at new technologies and way, you know, grass feeding and all of those things. And you don't, you don't see it elsewhere in the world. And do they have to reach anywhere like well, the targets well, we do. Well, you do see it. And I mean, that's what the Paris Agreement is about. That's what COP is about. And I mean, you can sit back and say, sure, let's not do anything. Let's just let, uh, you know, because sure, China is expanding. But actually, I can see the knock-on in other countries because ultimately, uh, when it comes to corporate interests, they're all moving in a direction that is greener. That, that's what actually, it, you know... Um, what consumers want over time. No, but they this will isn't, want no sorry, Pony, no, this no, is not what about but this isn't saying, like, what's the point in, in greening the national grid here because China's opening new coal fired power plants. If we green our national grid, globally, the level of emissions goes down. If we don't convince other people to consume less dairy products yeah. and, we and we produce less dairy products, they'll get them from elsewhere. It'll have no but, impact. But, that, but the but Greens that don't care about that. But that actually they is the same argument. They don't care about those type of facts. And this has to be called out for well, once and for all. Do you know I'd what, like... though? If everyone took that attitude, you know, that we have all signed up to COP26 and we've signed up to these agreements and 
in order, to, you know, to try and stall the climate change that is happening. And if we say, well, we won't do it, but we expect other countries to, we expect the bigger producers to do it. Like, sure, how would you get an agreement at all? Agree how would we bring down those global emissions? We'd agree to the cultural sector here in Ireland until the Green Party abandoned them and forgot about them completely. We have something like 100 productive mm. farmers now involved in that. And, like, is this what they actually want us to do so? Shut down as many of our, or reduce as many of our beef and dairy farmers as they possibly can, but then we can quite happily how do you pull down? Them. How do you pull down? How do you pull down the emissions? Well, at because the moment, already, we are zero point one Already there are concessions made with that we're, 25% emission I really think we're doing an awful lot. But why do we have to make ourselves the saviours of the whole world? And to the case of... China can do what they like with that 39%. Germany can open up right. coal. They can do everything they want, but we are supposed well, to clear your head. You hate to, hate to the whole guy open the greens, no, but very few countries have actually given given legislative powers behind cutting cutting herds to meet emissions. I, I think there's very political very little political political will internationally and certainly in the EU to cut emissions. And as Michael points out, Brazil and Argentina will run away with all the business. Yes. I, I, and that would be fine no, by you then. You would be quite happy ultimately, with that. Ultimately, um, we, do have to get to, we do have to reduce it. I do not agree that uh, we will see a ramping up elsewhere. Uh, when it comes to Germany, mm. we've just signed an agreement with Germany that we will have an interconnector because they want our renewable power. The world is moving in that direction. And either we are behind everybody else or we're part of that leadership. And I think that if you look at the EPA, mm. um, they are finding that as many people in rural Ireland as in urban Ireland want this change. And well, we can still, we can, no, 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 we can still we'll have farming. We can still have farming, but it is not We live in general election in Ireland. And the people okay. of Ireland can say and what she, they want the of the Green Party. come together as in. a party, a no, rural party. We can see, we'll see what the people out. will say to the Greens, just, in the uh, same as they did in the north of Ireland. I want to, I want to touch on, on something else, um, and it is a story that, that also affects rural Ireland, because motors can expect to see a jump in the cost of petrol and diesel from midnight tonight. For more on this, I'm joined by Head of Communications at the AA, Paddy Common. Um, Paddy, tell us about this increase we're likely to see, and by how much is it likely to hit us in the pocket um, each motorist, when we see this sort of staggered rise and return to the excise duties we were paying? Yeah, we from tonight, we will see an increase of six cents per litre on petrol and five cents per litre on diesel. From the 1st of September, there will be another seven cents per litre on petrol and five cents per litre on diesel. And then that will be rounded up on the 31st of October by eight cents per litre on petrol and six, uh, and, uh, six cents per litre again on diesel. So a total of 21 cents on petrol and 16 cents on diesel. So a 13.4% rise from where we are now and a 10.9% rise from uh, where we are now on diesel. Okay, so we're likely to, to see that incrementally return so as not to give us all a big shock immediately. But it's a great revenue earner for the state. Um, uh, do you believe we're being overcharged in this regard when you compare us to other countries? It's, I just did the analysis this evening and, and as it stands at the moment without the duties we are in 18th position in terms of, uh, of Europe in terms of costs so um, we're, we're not you know it's a reasonable cost we're paying and, uh, but when the duties go back on we will become the 11th most expensive for petrol and the 9th most expensive in Europe for diesel so certainly we are paying a lot for, uh, for our fuel and unfortunately for, for people who don't live in, in Dublin and who are outside the pale they don't really have a huge 
huge amount of alternatives. Things are improving in terms of public transport, but we are far from there yet. So there are some people who just have to use their car. And unfortunately, these people are the ones who are often hit the most by these rises. OK, let's bring the panel back in here. Um, Pauline, on this one, um, it was sort of inevitable when the prices came down that this, these taxes would, you know, come back. Others would say there's an awful lot of money around and do we really need to hammer motorists again? I mean, when it was introduced that we would have this reduction, it was 20 cent on petrol. It was 15 cent reduction on diesel. So we're nowhere near near that level, bringing it back up to that level. But everybody knew that it was temporary. Um, and it was, it was a measure, like many others, because of the cost of living. We had a huge spike in the prices. Um, but the, the prices have come hugely back down, 60 cent lower on petrol, 50 cent lower on diesel compared to where it was when we reduced it by 20 and 15. So we are in a much better position. It naturally but, come down on the markets. We do, we, do have to, we do have to be responsible for inflation, for all kinds of things. But we've also remembered done an awful lot of other things which were cost of living measures. This month, 100 euro mm -hmm extra for, for child maintenance, still, the, it's a, the it's 600 a euro in people. the electricity. It'll be a different one, difficult one uh, for people there to swallow. And I was just thinking of, I heard that on average it's going to cost maybe an extra 40 euro a month uh, to a motorist now when we see these duties go back on. Look, I, I think to be fair, everybody knew that this was coming down the line and what we're doing is doing it incrementally. But we can't just, you know, um, permanently cut our our taxes in this way like that's that's not what we flagged and um and as i say it's still significantly cheaper than where it was at the breakout of the war significantly cheaper we're bringing it back but it's staggered here and so while you feel the pinch it'll just slowly creep back up yeah look i feel the pinch I, I commute from kilkenny every day so it's a 250 kilometer round trip uh, so it'll cost me a few quid, probably more than 40 quid a month. But like, I actually have some sympathy for government on this front. It, it was temporary. It was always going to be painful. No matter how long they wait to reintroduce it, there's going to be some level of pushback. Um, it, it, for me, it kind of falls into the category of, of the, the, the 600 quid as well of, of energy. I, I would much prefer and would much prefer to have seen targeted measures to help people who are really struggling. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm not a high roller, but I don't mind acknowledging I have a, I have a decent job. I have a decent income. We absolutely felt the pinch and we saw our energy bills go up and we are seeing our grocery bills going up. But we're not at the point where we're not putting things into our shopping trolley because of it. There are those people. There are people who are going without. And that's the problem with the universal nature of, of the excise cut, the universal well, nature of those energy credits. That? I suppose, what can you do well, about we, we the likes done, of excise? We have done a bit of both, to, to be fair, we have done a bit of both. And part of it is because, you know, as, as it has been said, um, there are some people who, it's not necessarily to do with their income, but because of where they live, they are more impacted. So if you were to target it purely based on income, you're not getting to those people in rural Ireland, for instance. So there mm. has to be a bit of a balance there, do some universal. And we did a huge amount on right. targeted measures as well for the for those who really need it. Nonetheless, we are hearing from people, especially outside of Dublin, where you don't have the same transport links or any of that, that you know they're really going to feel it um, at this point, well, uh, course, Michael Healy Ray. The county that I represent, Kerry, uh, is going to be very badly affected by this. Uh, th the food that we have in our stores, it doesn't drop out of the sky. Everything is delivered by road. We're further from uh, the distribution points. So obviously... Uh 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People traveling to work, which is an awful lot of people, uh, and the cost of everything is going to go up so much after tonight and over the next couple of, couple of days. And this talk about that you keep going on about, oh, it's okay because we're only like it's dead by a thousand cuts. It's coming back. It's not as though like it's not coming back over the next number of months between here and October. It's going to be back up to what it was. And that is going to be very hurtful to people, in particularly living in rural Ireland. But he don't care too much about people living in rural Ireland. He actually don't give a damn about people living in rural Ireland. Okay. But that I'm message sure. has gone out well and clear and the people know about it. And they'll look, be looking look, forward to right. the Greens and everybody else knocking on their okay, doors Michael, next year. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I mean, does government care about rural Ireland? Not a damn. Um, well, when it comes to petrol, I think that's a pertinent question in, in that it'll, it'll depend what the, the political pressure is like come October. Because if we remember where these, these benefits came in the first place, there was a huge public outcry and a political mm. outcry about the cost of living at the time. The economic data is extraordinary in, in many ways for some parts of society. We've got, we've got a record number of people in employment the highest, beating a record that was set in 2001 at the height of the, the, height of the boom. Mm. So there is, in the interim between those two price, second price rises, there is a budget. So let's see what the political pressure is, is like then. We'll be in the run into a, into, a, into a general election and the Fianna Fáil finance minister will be looking across they've the chamber at Sinn Féin they've to, see, fi- what hap- they've, to they've, see what happens. You, well, you, if you've wondered, it, they've been very slow. They've never done anything about, you know, excise duty. They haven't done. They haven't really done it in Well, years. they did it last year. Let's see, F- where, let's Fianna see Fianna where we are Fianna Fáil um, and Fáil come Gael, October. Fianna Fáil and Fáil Gael have lost rural Ireland. The Greens never had it. That's the facts, no. That's what's happening. You're, in the you're representing today. them anyway, Michael, you'd say. Well, I'll do my best to okay. represent them. They you're wouldn't rep- want to be relying on Fianna Fáil, Fine sh- Gael or the Greens. OK, well, you're surely representing them tonight. Uh, thanks to you, Michael, and to John, um, and to pa- Paddy, who joined us on, on Skype uh, tonight. Pauline and Kieran will be staying on with me to discuss homeschooling. Uh, that's after this break. Welcome back now to discuss a topic that many parents may be divided in opinion on, and that's homeschooling. Should children attend a mainstream school or receive their education at home with their parents? Well, earlier this year, Thornish the Micheál Martin said he was not a fan of homeschooling as it leads to problems with socialisation. Well, to discuss this further, Green Party Senator Pauline O'Reilly, broadcaster Claire Ronan, 
News Talk presenter Kieran Cudahy and psychotherapist and author Richard Hogan are with me. And Pauline, I want to come to you first on this. You're not necessarily the political voice on this, you're the personal voice. This all comes from your own personal experience as someone who's homeschooled their children. Um, tell us about why you chose to do that. Yeah, that's right. I'm the, the homeschooling senator. Um, and, and I suppose there aren't too many of us. There's no other homeschooling senators, for one thing. Um, I mean, we we decided to do it because we felt that the, the oldest wasn't really ready to go to school. And then, you know, after a very short period of time, like, I mean, a matter of months, it actually just found it really worked for us and worked for the family. Um, and he was very relaxed about, uh, about learning. And you can kind of see when you're with your kids all the time that they just love learning. And it just continued from there. Um, and then we had another child after that and just continued the same thing. It was just the way that our family, that our family was. And I suppose I was lucky enough in that I knew it was an option because I have other friends, not even friends, acquaintances who were looking at that option at the time. Um, so this didn't come to you cold or you didn't suddenly say, you know, my, 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 my child isn't really comfortable with the idea of starting yeah. school. What am I going to do about this and scrambling around oh, well, for a well, solution? Well, no, there was a bit, there was a good bit of scrambling, to be honest with you. And, um, but what I would say to people is you look at it in the same way as you say, what are the local schools? Which one's going to suit my child? And for us, another one tagged on to that was homeschooling. But I mean, I did so much reading about it and thinking about it. But then once you make the decision, that's that's it. It's like, oh yeah, this is this is great. This is um, is fantastic, and it's the same way as when you have kids and you, you know, once you're doing it, you're doing mm. it. You're on the route. Um, and I've had so many positive experiences. But I have to say as well, like I've been chair of the Home Education Network Ireland for a number of years, so I know hundreds of families, and they do it for different reasons. And I, what, I, are the, what are those yeah, reasons? Well, well, I would say that about half of those who homeschool, it's because of actually traumatic experiences in school. And um, so they take their children out. So, you know, from mental health problems, like anxiety in school. So the child would have started school. They and started not been school happy and there. they're very unhappy. Like I spoke to one mother who, who rang me and she said, you know, uh, my son was crying for every morning for two years and hyperventilating. And I never knew that this was legal. And I'm so relieved and it's really made such a huge like light bulb moment, you know, but there's also things where actually the education system is letting people down. And so they, they feel that this, this is an option for them. There's those who don't have, we'll say, um, a multi-denominational school near them. And they, you know, they don't buy into the Catholic ethos of schools. So, you know, there's a variety of reasons. Um, so, so it might so be I, down I to limited options in the schools it, near them, maybe more yeah. so in areas like outside of Dublin where you'd have the local national school. And you know what, if you, if you don't like the setup there, yeah. then maybe it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a yeah, lot to move exactly. from elsewhere. There but, aren't other options. But I mean, it's, it's very fulfilling, I think, for the whole family because you, you mix with others who are homeschooling and, and for the kids, they're mi mixing with people of different okay. ages, you know, as well. Right. So I think that that's really positive. And like, I, I honestly think it's probably a subject and, um, you know, an, an area that really fascinates people because yeah. for a lot of us, I guess our first experience at homeschooling, and I would not describe it even close to homeschooling, was the pandemic where yeah. <laughs> our kids were forced to stay at home <laughs> and we had to look at ways around managing that. Yeah. Um, 
Do you think it does have its benefits, Richard, speaking from your experience as, as a teacher yeah. and in the area of psychotherapy? Of, of course, I've come, I'm coming with two hats there as, the, as an educationist and working in schools and then as a psychotherapist. And Pauline's case is not uncommon, let's say, and it's, there's about 800 families uh, who are being homeschooled currently, kids in, 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 who have been homeschooled currently, and a lot of those, and it's not to diminish those, a lot of those are very successful, and, a lot, and who's anyone to tell someone to do, what to do with their family? Mm. Just from my point of view as an educationist, it's the social aspect that I would think that we, we, you need to really think about because, you know, everything in a teenager world is designed around connection and the school has so many things going on. It's a robust, you know, really diverse uh, environment where they go on school trips, they go on field trips, they, they do all of this interacting. And how do we learn who we are? I think it's through our connection with others. Now, that's not to say that people who have been homeschooled don't, are absolutely isolated. But I just think in the school environment, and you mentioned it as one of the reasons for it, and this, I, wrote, I wrote about this in the examiner, was um, you know, anxiety. And I see that a lot, that uh, in my clinic, people, would, parents would decide not to bring their child into the school because they're anxious. And of course, to watch your child with anxiety is very difficult. But what you can get caught with there is what we call in psychology is a positive feedback loop. When you, when you take your child out because they're anxious, they can become, it immediately solves the problem, they're less anxious, but they can become more anxious in a more protracted, longer uh, trajectory of the issue because the thing that they're using to make themselves feel better can be the thing that actually causes them to feel worse in the long okay. run. The idea that it might be a crutch. You know, is, is like, that something you found? I, I mean, did you get to the point, and I, look, I don't yeah, know your own yeah, personal yeah. circumstances, that you thought, do you know what, maybe actually putting them in a school or putting them in a classroom might be a good thing you see, at this point. You see, I would like even with respect, as you're describing mm. it, you're talking about opting out of a thing yeah. where that's not what it is. It's actually two different choices. It's not we're deciding we're just not going to do that thing. We're still doing a thing. It's just a different thing. Yeah. And, and I think people are... Uh, you know, when you don't know others, you do feel, gosh, there must be some kind of social problem there, um, isolation. I can tell you that there are a huge number of people who are very socially isolated in schools. And, and that's what the research would back up. And actually, the research backs up that there is no um, social issue when it comes to homeschool kids. That's what the, the UK research would show us. So, of course, when you look at, look at it through a certain lens, you see all the problems but actually, when you're doing it and when you're meeting other people, like, why wouldn't it be a natural thing? Is it really natural to be sitting in a room with 30 people the exact same age as you, all vying for, like, yeah. uh, you know, a power kind of struggle for everybody at the same age? It's not natural, really, either. I'm not saying that it's bad for people that it suits, but there's, okay. there's an expectation now that this is normal and this is yeah, not normal. Going to the business world where they will have to be doing that as well. You, know, you never sit, I can tell you now, you never sit in a room with 30 people the same age as you. You sit in environments where I'm you meet different the ages people. here now. Maybe in this Look at the dolls. I mean, Claire, uh, what, what do you think of that, that Pauline's saying in some ways it's unnatural to have, you know, a class full of children the same age, maybe even the same maybe the same gender or whatever. Do you know what I mean? That they would all be in one class with, you know, a teacher over that, who not related to them, um, sort of guiding them through the day and, and everything that goes with that and maybe the kind of stresses that that brings. Well, I mean, Pauline, you know, saying that it's not natural, you're probably right. It probably isn't natural, but it's what happens. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, that's the way the, so the education system works in Ireland. I mean, one thing that's interesting, I have five children and I didn't try and educate any of them. I mean, I, I admire you so much because I can't remember nearly anything I learned in school. The one thing I have brought with me through my life is 
handling social situations. So when your children start in secondary school, you meet the goody two-shoes, you meet the baddie child, you meet the giddy one, you meet the serious one, the happy one. They're all the same sort of kids that were in school with you. And what you've learned in school is how to work with them, how to have a good relationship with them, how to handle them, how to handle yourself, sometimes in very difficult situations. And that is what you need for the rest of your life. And much more, I think, than Pythagoras' theorem, uh, how you handle other people in a social situation, mm. not always in a happy social situation for all children. In fact, I think all children go through hard times going through school. As, as, do, as do kids who are at home. We all know we have mm. kids at home and in school and everybody goes through challenges. But it's the assumption that somehow these kids are, you know, are not mixing with anybody. And it doesn't, it's not, it's, it's not borne out in reality. Um, and I absolutely know kids who are in school um, who are not mixing with anybody either. But, so, the, but, so, and, and by, most people... By default, I suppose, aren't you more likely, if you are in a class with kids, just to, to mix and have well, your friends well, and navigate those little relationships it, very yeah, early on and, in and life? And again, it, it would seem like, if you think of it from the school point of view, and that's what we're all used to, you would say, well, that, that makes sense. But actually, mm. it also makes sense that, um, you know people aren't always mixing, that the research would say actually most people only have like one friend or no friends or two max, really. That's what the research really? would say. Yeah, oh. and the growing, up, growing up in Ireland study, that's what they've found. So there isn't this thing of this big gang going around together anyway. Um, and you okay, have to... And you're you reflecting to... on maybe a reality there. Yeah. Well, you need six Seriously. friends. You need six people to carry your coffin. Man, that's that's, that's <laughs> yeah. the metric, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Look, as, as a dad, yeah. you know, would you... And, like, you talk a lot about sport as well and how important that is, you know, and, and, like, I mean, you could homeschool and then make sure your kids are involved in loads of other activities outside of school. Yeah. Uh, and they go down, they do GAA every weekend and they get involved in music and in other things and making pals outside... Uh, outside of the home that doesn't require a classroom environment. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm acutely conscious. There's probably lots of people at home watching this and they kind of think, oh God, kind of homeschools for weirdos a little bit. You know, would all just... They, they, well, I, think, I, think, no, I, I think that's a reaction that people do have and I'm not defending it. I kind of... Maybe that's my kind of gut reaction as well. But then I'm acutely conscious I'm comparing a known with an unknown. I wasn't homeschooled. Nobody I know was homeschooled. My... my understanding of homeschooling is is probably through TV shows or something where probably they were portrayed as kind of oddballs. Maybe the kids were homeschooled for whatever reason. So so like I, I'm very slow to criticize other so you're parents' saying like, choices. Potential prejudice there as well. Yeah, I think sometimes can actually people can be too dismissive of the likes of Pauline who decide to homeschool actually without really understanding it because none of us have been through it. Now I the point has been made about socialization. I I just wonder is there another element that the kids miss out on? And Pauline, you, you, I'd be interested in your view on this, like the common cultural experiences as well that we all have. You know, all of us here were, were, went through the mainstream education system and we all share, despite the fact that we all went to schools in different parts of the country, we all share common experiences, yeah, common cultural well, touchstones. Well, I, I, will, I will say that, um, you know, if somebody comes into the country for instance, they've come in the last year. They don't share those common... Like, there's a lot of diversity. And as was what I would say is, this is about tolerance. This is about acceptance, that people do things differently. I'm never going to say that... I've been chair of a school as well as a St. Mm. Richard area. Like, I'm never going to say, you should do this, this is the right mm. thing. Mm. And all I'm doing is saying, mm. everybody deserves the same respect. Mm. And what really upsets me, actually, is 
that the Taoiseach's comments, Taunish's comments were so, you know, that you mentioned at the start there, they were so dismissive about kids who are homeschooled that a lot of, like, teenagers got on to me in particular and were like, like, how dare he? How dare a politician come out and say that about my lived reality, mm. which they don't even understand? And Do you think, this is, uh, you know, he was coming about... from a, a, you know, a traditional teaching background there and that there would be a natural yeah. bias, obviously, towards anyone who would choose not to send their child into yeah. school. And I mean, I think, I think that it's really important uh, for teachers, they've got to manage a class of up to 30 kids. That's a, that's a skill set, but it's... The skill is in managing the education of all these yeah. people that you don't really but, understand. The skill isn't necessarily in having here, all the but knowledge. Here's the thing. If you're homeschooled, you do have to go back into the school system to do the Leaving Cert. So there's 55,000 students about to sit in Wednesday next week. And if you're in the school, this is what I feel, and I, and I absolutely agree. And no one is, you know, to tell you what to do with your children or how to educate them, mm. but they will if they want to go back into this highly competitive situation, which I don't agree with standardising tests either. I think they're, they're not fit for purpose either, but as you said, this is where we are. This is the system that we are in. And if you're in the system for six years and you're being taught by experts who really understand the nuances of exams and how to get that little extra little point out of a particular subject, or you haven't been taught by an expert, I know it's... It's, going to, it's not going to be unproblematic for the child who comes into that system late in the game. Mm. And what happens, I suppose the question is as well, you know, is it, is it common that maybe go, it goes through primary school and then at the point of secondary school that parents say, you know, they're ready now, launch them yeah. into the world, as it were, into the world of, of uh, mainstream education at the age of 12 or 13? Yeah, well, is that, is that yeah, that's, commonly that's, that, the way that's it works? That's the reality for my, for my family, to, to be honest with you. But um, I think that people do different things. What, what does happen is that people make a decision at a certain point, particularly younger people themselves, at like 15, 16, they're like, well, what do I want to do? In the same way as everybody has those mm -hmm. kind of conversations. They probably do a little bit younger because they've kind of been developing their interests all along. And then they say, well, how am I going to get to that? Okay. And then they look, they look themselves at all the options. Some do A-levels, some do SATs, okay. some back. do back. Yeah. And you don't have to go to school mm. for those. And some do the Leaving Cert. And if they do the Leaving Cert, they do decide to go into school for a year or two years. Uh, and, you know, in the same way as everybody else, you'd knuckle okay. down because you've decided that's what I'm going to do. I will say this to defend the school system. When you coach underage camogie and hurling, yeah. I mean, when they're four and five, they do not understand how to stand in a line. <laughs> and by God, once they go into primary school, they understand it. They know, they know yeah. when to be quiet and when to queue okay. up behind the girl in front. All right. I think we've all been enlightened by that uh, discussion tonight. Um, so thanks, Pauline, also for sharing for sharing your story on that one. It was really it was really good to hear it about something we like. I would honestly say I know I, I knew very little about um, up until now. So uh, thanks to Pauline and to Kieran and to Richard. Lots more coming up after this break, including the cost of a summer holiday. Welcome back with the summer sunshine hitting us this week. Holiday season is about to kick off, but at what cost? Has the rising cost of living impacted on people's travel plans this summer? Well, to discuss this, broadcaster Claire Ronan is still here with me. And we're joined uh, via Skype tonight by Director of Cloud9 Travel, Jackie Spain. Jackie, um, you're very welcome along to the programme. Tell me, um, we're talking about affordability and whether people can afford to go away, whether they have the money for that foreign holiday. Are you finding they do? or they're having to choose to stay at home this summer? 
Um, no, quite the, quite the opposite, actually. They are most definitely travelling. Um, agents right across the country are reporting one of their busiest years in many, many years. Um, 2019 was a particularly good year for us, only to be thwarted by COVID on the, in 2020, which was gearing up to be even better again. But this has excelled anything that we had anticipated. So people are certainly travelling. There's terrific value to be gotten. So it's understandable that they're traveling. Yeah, you mentioned about value. Um, is that value compared to looking around at home and, and seeing what's available in Irish hotels and Irish accommodation? Well, that's certainly the, the um, reports that we're getting from our clients. People have started off and, and people want a holiday in Ireland, but um, it's prohibitive because the costs are still remarkably high. And having had a conversation earlier with one of your researchers, I just had a little look to see a typical family, two adults, two children, if they were to holiday in Ireland in one of the well-known hotels that would be suited to, to families. And for a week, now I do appreciate that a week would possibly be a bit long for a holiday in Ireland, but if you're to compare like with like, a week in Ireland in this particular hotel would have cost you in the region of two and a half thousand on a bed and breakfast basis. I then went and looked for the best value holiday abroad at the same time for seven nights. And I could get the same family to Bordeaux for about 1,600 euros. Oh, yeah. So I think the decision might be made there. I mean, if you're talking, what, 2,600 euro versus 1,600 euro, you're saving 1,000 euro and you're getting to sunny Bordeaux. Um, uh, Claire, to bring you in on this, there's a, there's a lot to like there. I know, but we are, we are encouraged to holiday at home. That was the big thing, obviously, during the pandemic because we oh, all these restrictions and disincentives to travel abroad. But uh, it seems people are, are going and getting out of the country if they can for value, if nothing else. It does seem to be the case. Um, I think that Michael O'Leary came out recently and said that their bookings on their flights are well up. Now, I also did some research on this and... A 10-day holiday from the 8th to the 18th of July ranges in price, depending on what part of the country you go to for a bed and breakfast, between two and a half and four and a half. And obviously you can go way up. Mm. Um, there are some there's still some value to be had in some of the student accommodation in towns like Galway and places like that, where it's a little bit cheaper. But if you go to Benidorm or Spain or Costa Brava, a five-star hotel is about 1,100 for the same 10 days, mm. a four-star 770, three-star 678, and a two-star is 686. So there is a big difference in price, Claire. Now, it's obviously, we are in the most beautiful country in the world, but unfortunately we can't guarantee the weather and it is a little bit expensive. And I think some people are actually walking with their, their feet. Yeah, but other people will say, you know, this year it's still things are really unaffordable to me. So even with, you know, all of that, there's still those added add on costs when you do choose to travel abroad, notwithstanding the value you'll probably get in restaurants compared to home, that the stay at home option may still be a good one. But do you notice that? I mean, look, the, the hotel prices are very, very high right now that it, in essence, the market is now geared towards American tourists and and, and tourists who can afford to pay those prices and don't worry about the final bill at the end of their three or four nights stay. Yes, but actually we've noticed in Sligo, um, there was a, I was leaving Sligo this morning, there was such a buzz around the town, the weather was beautiful. You wouldn't want to go anywhere else. But there's quite a few Australians coming in as well. So we've a lot of Americans and a lot of Australians. And as you say, 
they um, are making, they are not as concerned about the price of the hotels. But it does have to be said that, you know, now when you're bringing your children on an Irish holiday, we've got playgrounds, we've got walks up mountains, we have one in Knocknaray and Sligo. There's so much to do. There's so much money has been put into mm. all the different um, sites. Okay, you're on a port to Ireland yeah, yeah, now, am, yeah. just at the end. You had to <laughs> come back with that one. Thanks, Claire, And uh, thanks to all our panel tonight. That is it from us. My thanks uh, to Jackie, who joined us as well. From all the late team here, good night. And do take care.